What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And my guest today is a professor of political theory at Oxford, a fellow at New College at Oxford, and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in D.C. She's published all over the place, including the book Covenants Without Swords, Idealist Liberalism and the Spirit of Empire. And the book that introduced me to her was Empires Without Imperialism, Anglo-American Decline and the Politics of Deflection, which uh, if you fucking hate Neil Ferguson, sidebar, this is the book for you. <laughs> it's it's the best takedown uh, in a scholarly way uh, of Neil Ferguson-ism, which is like hack airport bookstore imperialism that I've ever read. <laughs> I mean, like, and she has yet another book just out called Unsettling the World, Edward Said and Political Theory. And we're not here to talk about the Said book directly, but I mean, I'm an Edward Said stan and a lot of um, what she writes in that book bears on our discussion today. So like, I'm sure it's going to make its way in, but this person also has a really refreshing perspective on IR theory because she's not an IR scholar, okay? She's kind of denaturalizing concepts that we use in IR and um, that we that puts IR work itself in historical context, you know? Um, and that forces us to look at our own blind spots and to really question, like, what are we doing in this thing called foreign policy, right? But even aside from her actual work, there's a vibe here that really uh, that is like very attractive in an analytical sense. Right. Like or in a normative sense, even like you'll see she does not pull punches. Uh, She does the truth to power thing. That's totally the vibe of this show. All to say, I'm really excited to have here today. None other than Professor Jeannie Moorfield. Welcome to the show, Jeannie. Thank you, Van. That was the nicest introduction anyone has ever given me. That was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I, will, I will endeavor to earn that. <laughs> wow. Awesome. So our, our task today is to deconstruct the political project that is most strongly attached to the research of this scholar named John Eikenberry. And that project is uh, American liberal internationalism, which is explicitly liberal hegemony. Like when Americans do it, it's liberal hegemony. And like, that's what they call it too, you know? Before we get into that though, I had kind of like a personal question or a curiosity. It set the scene here. You're one of like the great critics of liberal internationalism as it's existed or like as it's been invoked at least, right? And you're also at Oxford, which like, (laughs) I had always seen that as kind of like ground zero for liberalism but like do i have a wrong impression of like the oxbridge stuff or like i guess i want to know like what is it like being a critic of the core living in the core well you know so it's interesting the 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 key british imperialists that i looked at in my last book the book before the saeed book all were at new college where i am now a fellow exactly And, uh, and gilbert murray I now have the portrait, the college portrait of Gilbert Murray in my office, Wow! sort of surrounded by communist art, which I thought was appropriate. <laughs> um, but I just, uh, it's, 
I, again, I think what you said earlier, which is that I am not an IR scholar. So in some ways, I don't have anything invested in um, in that world. But there are also people here doing really critical, interesting, anti-colonial IR work. So I think that Oxford might be ground zero for some of this, but it is also ground zero for the resistance. Very interesting. So it's so it's it's pluralist in good ways and bad. All right. <laughs> John Eikenberry comes to Oxford often. Does he? I didn't know that. Yes. Although maybe that's not surprising, but yeah. Okay. Um, so for listeners, this episode is kind of happening now because Eikenberry recently had an essay in Foreign Affairs and it functioned as a full-throated defense of American hegemony in the year of our Lord, 2022. Like, I mean, going into 2023 and we're still defending liberal hegemony. Is that a, like, seriously? So that it's the guffaw that I shared with Jeannie about the, the appropriateness and relevance and et cetera, et cetera, that like really stimulated um, this, this get together. Yeah. And of course, Jeannie is like one of the best counterpoints out there to any kind of myth-making about liberalism and liberal order. So like who better to sort of pick this apart? But before we do that, I don't want to make any assumptions about the audience, like if they know who Eikenberry is. Do you mind if I hit mm -hmm. like some just like wave tops of his background before yeah. we get into questions? So Eikenberry is a professor of international relations at Princeton. He's known for theorizing and advocating U.S. liberal internationalism. But like I said, that means U.S. liberal hegemony. And in debates about U.S. grand strategy, he defends a position that he calls deep engagement, which is a mashup of primacy and neoliberal institutionalism. And if that sounds very beltway, it might be useful to know, I don't know, that he moved to Princeton from Georgetown University in D.C., which it's a very good school. I adjuncted there at one point. But uh, Georgetown is also a very connected school, and there's a subset of people there who are intimate with foreign policy practitioners or are themselves practitioners, like so much so that my credentials as a former like Pentagon guy in a previous life is what got me the teaching gig at Georgetown in the first place. Like I had no scholarly record at that point. It was my, it was my, being an insider or whatever, you know? And Eikenberry is also, it's probably worth mentioning this, one of the few like A-list level celebrity scholars in IR. So our field is like very specialized. It's fragmented. Uh, doesn't produce A-listers anymore. But from the 80s up through like around the Iraq war, period, give or take. That was the era that gave us John Mearsheimer, Steve Walt, Joe Nye. Uh, and then Eikenberry was really one of the last to get in uh, the door on like this meta IR scholar deal. There are no more meta IR scholars. So with that sort of background for the, the listener, like you are a liberal or not a liberal critic. You're a critic of li the liberal point of view on foreign affairs. And you're also, because of that, a very close reader of like liberal texts. So I take it you've spent a lot of time with uh, John Eikenberry's book After Victory, which mm -hmm. the 2001 uh, thing that made him kind of famous. Why do you think that project 
was a hit in DC when like the best IR research kind of doesn't get any traction at all, particularly in the policy world? I think I think that book hit a sweet spot that um, between a kind of uh, hard-nosed, realist-sounding interventionism and a, and a liberal internationalism, and in particular with this idea of strategic restraint, mm-hmm. which is which is the, the combining of those words is really important for Eikenberry and I think for that book and I think for why it it got so much traction, right? Because he could it could both talk about restraint as an idea, but restraint that could always be um, strategically withheld or employed depending upon the political environment. And so that it the way it was reviewed in foreign affairs and elsewhere basically made it seem like now liberalism is meaningful again. So it's not just liberalism as utopianism or pie in the skyness, but this is a robust, muscular kind of liberalism that gives us hope that we can have a, a, a foreign policy which both says it is. Um, about all the things we want it to be about, mm-hmm. multilateralism, human rights, um, the environment, the list is um, is also strategic in and of itself, and then it expands and contracts depending on the on the audience and the and the year and the and like whatever. <laughs> but also they be all of those things and also be strategically interventionist and attached to American hegemonic power right and i think that's what makes it that's what gives it traction in the policy world yeah it fills it fills like a narrative and a political space particularly because it's 2001 too so it's like i can't remember if it's before 9 11 or not but we're still like drunk on unipolarity at that point and so (laughs) and the democrats biggest like psychological hang-up is getting out hawked by republicans as if like you can't allow that to happen or something and yeah, yeah. that's yes, interesting it is, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but. Yeah. the thing that's noteworthy about some of your work and then like taking uh i can bury an after victory in that context is that there's I, I take it that you argue there's a family resemblance between liberal hegemony an actually existing liberal empire. And so mm-hmm. you have this book, Empires Without Imperialisms. It's fantastic. I thought it was really useful. Um, and you, you compare the British liberal empire with neocons today. And you point out, actually, like there's a subset of neocons like Donald Kagan and Neil Ferguson. There were points at which they were self-identifying as imperialists. I mean, like, it's not like you're mm-hmm. throwing shade. I mean, you are, you're critiquing them or whatever, but like, you're also like critiquing them with their own words, you know? Right. I mean, so <laughs> could you give a snippet of like, what is that book about? What are you trying to do there? I mean, what I'm trying to show is I'm, I'm a scholar of 20th century imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. So, and what started out as a project, which was largely about the early 20th century British imperialism, the as I, and that was my dissertation, the original book. Oh. And and as I um, was working on the second book and I was thinking more about those archives, it seemed clearer and clearer to me that I was seeing resonances. And I sort of had gone there in the conclusion mm-hmm. um, that um, 
that this is this is actually um, this is not just a family resemblance. There's something even more striking going on here. There's a a kind of carving out of space around a hegemon and a discomfort with calling that hegemon imperial. Um, or even in the early 20th century, British imperialists were uncomfortable with the word empire because they already understood that to be an empire was to be hierarchical, uh, racist, and uh, uh, to like to well, no like all of yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. All of the things that liberals who attached their names, who wanted to say, no, the British Empire is actually a liberal project, didn't want it to be. So it had to be a variety of other things, because at the time, Germans were imperialists. Turks were imperialists. Uh, yeah. Even, this is phenomenal, Indians were imperialists. Russians were imperialists. Everyone else was an empire. <laughs> so that, like, everyone else was an empire. So you had to develop a language which allowed you to say, a, a deeply exceptionalist language that allowed you to say, this uh, hegemonic state formation, imperial formation, makes sense in the language of, of liberalism with which I feel comfortable and which, um, which will... Um, what, uh, not, not just to strategically enable my empire, but strategically enable a, a, a worldview that I um, that I'm committed to. I see that as just just the the lingua franca of the uh, of American power since 1949. Other people have done deeper work into the actual con like um, archival links between those moments. So mm -hmm. Indrajit Parmer's really important work on the sort of, and uh, John M. Hobson's work on the kind of handoff of power that happened from the British Empire to the U.S. Empire. And it happened at an intellectual level and a strategic level. And I, the language shifted away from uh, imperial to like we're anything other than imperial, we are, um, you know, we're we're uh, the leader of the free world. We're um, at the Cold War kind of freezes this all in a moment when we don't have to actually deal with it. But after the Cold War, once again, you see the rise of what is essentially unaccountable hegemonic power attached to a state that considers itself liberal. And the apologists come out of the woodwork. And the apologists are of a variety of different sort of idiomatic iterations. So they're neocons and they are liberal internationalists. My last book focused on the neocons, but what I really started to realize is it wasn't just like the most neocons and the bridge figure for me was really Michael Ignatiev, who um, self-described yeah. yeah, self liberal would never describe himself, but who, as you know, as associated with the neocons, just only incidentally happened to support the war in Iraq, later apologized for it, but didn't really apologize for it. He was like, I was told bad information, that kind of apology. Yeah. So that was when I realized, actually, it's not just like the Fergusons who talk about why we should recover empire, mm -hmm. or even Donald Kagan, who says, you know, and basically says that the British empire the Athenian Empire and the American state are the same thing. Um, it really is baked into the language of liberal internationalists like Eikenberry and, and Dan Dudney, who have been co-writing. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to know that they've been co-writing since the 90s. And um, that that logic is absolutely the same as the liberal imperialists. It, does that, it's, not, it's not, you can't reduce it like 
to substantively the same that like they're obviously dealing with different historical circumstances mm -hmm. but for someone like me who is a, a scholar basically of ideological formations or rhetorical strategies the um the similarities are are stunning yeah what do you talk in that book you talk about the politics of deflection what do you what do you mean mm -hmm. by that do you have like examples or oh many there are many historical <laughs> I, was, I was hoping so <laughs> i'm kidding you, but yeah <laughs> So I talk a lot about strategies of deflection. What are the different strategies? Because the, the point of being a liberal empire or being even more so in an American context, mm -hmm. uh, an empire that cannot call itself an empire, right? A, apt, a hegemonic state with more bases and military personnel and hardware and expenditure than any other state or empire or you know people in history. And which is like does not want to be accountable for its own power does not want to be held to account and strategically doesn't that's an empire to my mind but can't call itself an empire and so you have to but if you're going to be liberal which means you also at least have to gesture toward a bundle of things that liberals say they care about so equality uh sovereign autonomy mm -hmm. um you know human rights multilateralism, um, all of these uh, international cooperation, environmental um, and cooperation, all these things, right, that matter to liberals. If you're going to say you care about that and you care about unaccountable hegemonic power, you have to square that circle in a way because <laughs> those things are not reconcilable. They just aren't, right? If you're actually going to care about some of those things, you need to share power. But if you don't want to share power, then you got to come up with ways of getting people to look other places than at the fact that you are actually an unaccountable power who has done really terribly illiberal things for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the record of the United States in the world since 1949 is a, is a record of wreckage. If you are uh, someone from the, many of places in the global South, right? A, a record of absolute wreckage of nascent democracies, of, of post-colonial democracies, of states that have tried to nationalize their, um, their natural resources. So reconciling that means coming up with ways of getting people to look other places. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean by a strategy of deflection, which is anytime anybody gets too close to that discomfort, that, that part where it's like, okay, you say you care about these things, but actually then you have to do a variety of things that get people to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So one of them is to say, you know, the alternative is always worse. When you say, hey, potentially maybe we might want to look at the history of U.S. imperialism in the world, a liberal internationalist of this ilk will say, what do you want, China? What, what do you want? Really? Russia? That's what What's you want? What's the future counterfactual? Yeah. What's the future counterfactual? So that's one strategy. That's the... That's the strategy of the future is always worse. I could go on and on. <laughs> they might actually start to bore you. Like it gets, it bores down into like sort of linguistic twists and turns that are are embedded in and 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 very invested in getting people to look elsewhere. There are also, do you want to? The other big one is, do you want to embolden our enemies? Like mm. saying aloud that the U.S. might not be liberal would then embolden Russia and other places to act. So like, we are only as strong as our belief in ourselves. Hmm. 
So it, yeah, it's a constant uh, for in that iteration of liberal deflection, we are in a constant state of existential crisis. Yeah, it's the one of the common the way the the common way that like the average Washingtonian I feel like thinks about this, and even how I was trained to think about it is like, well, American military supremacy is necessary because that's what buys stability, and without stability. You can't have the multilateralism. You can't have the human rights and environmental protection. We can't have all these goodies that we say we like as liberals unless we have oxygen and oxygen means military supremacy. <laughs> and so it's and like it seems like no the thing that like drives me fucking crazy is that no matter how we ch claim to be adjusting foreign policy from president to president going back for like God knows how long now, it's always like some of the rhetoric changes on the margins. Maybe we don't do any rock invasion this presidency, but the bottom line of like military primacy buys stability. It's a through line. And then it's just like, we depend on our, our goodwill and like good fortune or something to like not have to do Iraq wars or, you know, I, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's also, I mean, there is no, even that I would like trouble, which is that, they, they know that it actually isn't stability. So, so to a certain degree, we know that, that Afghanistan looks the way it does because of a history of U.S. involvement over the last 50 years, right? We mm -hmm. know that there are, there, are, there are places all over the world which we can identify or the, the, your, your Beltway friends would identify as trouble spots, which have had massive U.S. fingerprints in them, Right. So the reason for the trouble is mysterious is, you know, the reason for the trouble is always mysterious, right? It's always, and that's another thing about liberal deflection. It's, it's deeply presentist. So mm -hmm. it has to constantly be saying, we have to solve this problem now. And we can't stop to look at how we got here because if we do that. Then we will, we'll, you know, we'll just sputter and we'll give, you know, sucker to our enemies. But the whole point is this fictional stability is actually deeply a unstable and b like itself the product the instabilities are themselves the product of u.s action so i i don't buy that stability narrative at the end of the day what they just want is u.s power they want hegemony that is the primary goal the and all of the other stuff that goes around it, which is that it's stable, that it's more democratic, that it is in the long run better than another way of being. All of that is by way of justifying what is a commitment to hegemony for hegemony's sake. So if, if I'm playing devil's advocate, which is frankly, I don't do very often, but <laughs> like, say, <laughs> defenders of Eikenberry would say that like, He's an anti-neocon. Neocons don't do rest strategic restraint, right? They're skeptical of multilateralism. And like in the Bush years, I I think Eikenberry was a critic of the Iraq War. So like, what's your what's your answer? What's your response to all of that? If like a defender throws those things up, I think it's crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> At the end of the day, maybe he was opposed to like. I think there isn't a lot of difference strategically. I see very little difference between neocons and liberal internationalists of the Eikenberry ilk. They are both committed to American primacy. They are both committed to strategic intervention. 
So the neocons may be more trigger happy than the international than the liberal internationalists, but that is a, a that seems to me to have to do with like a, a variety of other factors other than the basic premise, which is that they are both committed to these things. I think one thing that should clue us into this is that Francis Fukuyama was a member of the Project for a New American Century for ages, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So he resigned Anna Hoff over the Iraq war. And then he and John Eikenberry joined forces in the Princeton project for, you know, the, for, what is it? Strategic Security Princeton project for blah, 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 in which they write this um, very long report on grand strategy, right? And the grand strategy is essentially a neoconservative grand strategy. So I, I honestly, I have a heart, maybe in the moment there was something that might have made John Eikenberry less satisfied with with that intervention, but I think um, over the long run, there's very little that differentiates between them. Uh, they there is something in H. Diplo a while ago about this debate that said they they doth protest a little bit too much on this one, the liberal internationalists, because um, because when you get down into the weeds, there isn't a lot of difference. Yeah, there's a way in which. I've thought about this a lot too, like, cause I don't see the liberal internationalist and the neocons as the same. I see the neocons as the hawkish, the more hawkish liberal internationalists. But, right. They're not identical. Right. You're yeah. Right. But the, at the same time, left liberals or like uh, liberal internationalists of the, like the sort of more restrained variety, I guess they, they take a certain joy in like vilifying the neocons and that some that has the effect of like obscuring the similarity between them, like like the military primacy commitment and all of that. Yeah. No, I think right. I think that's another deflection, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we can just be talking about how different we are from the neocons, then you might not look at the fact that we are as equally committed to American primacy as they are, and um and and to again, I can't stress this enough. Like unaccountable power, mm. they don't want the U.S. to be accountable to anyone. And that is really, that is what is similar about them. And I think Eikenberry's commitment to a, like the language of Leviathan mm -hmm. and to Habesian power, uh, the thing about the Leviathan is that the Leviathan, Hobbes's Leviathan, whether or not it's created by institution where everybody agrees to give over their power or whether by acquisition where everybody's just encompassed into it, um, both are unaccountable, and that is what makes it a Leviathan. Eikenberry's commitment to that word and that concept says everything about his notion of international power. Yeah, I there was a uh, I, I found this report, a think tank report. I want to say it was from like the Progressive Policy Institute or something. It's from 2003, and in it mm. you have a who's who of like B Biden foreign policy type people like Michelle Michelle Flournoy, who at one point was uh, a mentor to me to be totally candid, Kurt Campbell. And like, um, there were, I, I can't remember if Eikenberry signed on to it, but it was that, it was that who's who, right? Um, and they're clearly like the Democratic Party's sort of foreign policy apparatus. And what, what they were doing in the report was defining, branding a rhetorical strategy that they called 
They called themselves progressive internationalists. They called their project progressive internationalism. And I read with a fucking fine tooth comb what what they were prescribing. And it's the same shit that they did in office. It's the same shit that's in Project for a New American Century in the 90s, basically. They weren't calling for the overthrow of Saddam. Like, that part is true. But it's still literally military primacy and no one should be able to come close to us on that. You know, it's yeah. still global basing infrastructure. It's still ballistic missile defense investments at a time when it was like this trillion dollar boondoggle. Like, it's like magic shit. And so like... They called it progressive internationalism, you know, but it was the same. It was the same as the fucking neocon agenda. Like what, what are we doing? Right. So in your uh, new book, Unsettling the World, you have this passage and if you don't mind, I want to quote it at length and then ask you a question about it. So yeah, yeah. you, you say, quote, liberal thinkers and pundits worry about the dangers they didn't see coming from the placid flow of American culture dangers lurking behind our current moment. Similarly, Trump's election compelled supporters of the American-led liberal world order, like John Eikenberry, to clutch their pearls in horror at the hostile revisionist power, quote-unquote, who sat in the Oval Office, scheming to overthrow everything good about the world order. Trade, alliances, international law, multilateralism, environmental protection, torture, and human rights. In all, liberal public intellectuals have responded to Trump by turning inward and perseverating on who we are while mourning the loss of the liberal world. End quote. Um, the whole book is like that, which is remarkable. Uh, like, like, why don't more people write like this? Fuck. Um, but... <laughs> My initial reaction when Trump like won in early 2017, it was basically the same as Eikenberry's. Like, if I'm being honest, like it was a reactionary reaction. It triggered an emotional nostalgia for a politics that had uh, like a stable narrative and that made us feel good about ourselves. That is like my personal experience in that moment. But like, I quickly jettisoned that. Like, it it was it was clearly an intellectual dead end, but also dangerous. And I, I, I just want you to speak to that quote. Like, what what are you saying there? What, what does that make you think of? And like, do you see something similar there with the pearl clutching of Eikenberry that you say with the reaction that neocons had to 9-11? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think the key there language-wise for Eikenberry is this idea of revisionist, of hostile revisionist power. Hmm. And what he's essentially saying is that there are very rarely moments when revisionism and hostility are not combined for Eikenberry. So that to write history differently, to interpret the, the present differently, to have alternative um, narratives about how we got here is hostile, right? Because that is deeply, deeply unsettling to him. Because if you do that, then they're really, because if, if all you have is a kind of narrative about who we are, which is essentially all that liberal internationalists have, right? They don't, they, I, I think, I think in their heart of hearts, they know that their, that their liberal politics is attached to 
their liberal commitments are attached to a power politics, which has historically and in the contemporary age been, you know, um, aggressive and imperial. But so all you have at the end of the day is a narrative about what we are anyway. We are not liberal. We are not imperial people. We are people who care about democracy. We are people who care about our highest values. And that is who we are at our core. And so when someone like Trump comes along, suddenly that isn't who we, that we, we might've been wrong. And that could drive you in a couple of directions, right? Mm -hmm. So one, it could make you reflective about, oh, you know, oh my God, what actually was going on below the surface? What, what stuff was liberalism that I'm, um, that, uh, that I've been, you know, attesting to all of this time? What is it not doing for people? What 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 does years and years and years of overspending on the security budget and unaccountable wars, how might that have blown back on us? Like how might have, you know, a domestic politics in which we were so committed to, you know, mass incarceration and all the things yeah. right that come rather than saying that because you can't say that because that is so painful. Right. So you just dig in. And you say, that's not who we are. Mm -hmm. That really is who we are. And so that can't be. And therefore, all of you people who might be suggesting that we think more clearly or think more deeply or revisit history or can, like in our in this clarity of moment, which we have here, like think otherwise, you're dangerous, right? All we can do and hostile. You are a hostile revisionist power. I am a hostile revisionist power, Dan. I mean, Van, so are you. Right? <laughs> all, right? This is, we are all hostile revisionist powers because yeah. at the end of the day, there is no revision that is not destructive. And that is why I, that, that, that is what, if you want to, uh, you know, <laughs> ask me frankly, is what motivates my deepest rage at these at these guys is that complete unwillingness to accept any responsibility a complete unwillingness to reflect um and that and and because they are such powerful public intellectuals mm -hmm. they hold, they have a huge responsibility and instead of looking what they like that that power politics in the face they turn inward they run away they dig in and it's irresponsible yeah, no. <laughs> she says. No, that's like exactly. I mean, you're you're describing the fork in the road that I and my former cadre all faced more or less simultaneously. And like, I went one direction, the former that you described, where it was like, you start thinking through, oh, what if Trump is symptomatic rather than anomalous, right? What if, what if this is, what if there are like structures that our own choices are implicated in? that are like mm. reproducing the shit show. And how could they not be if you claim to be a hegemon? In what world does some a self-appointed hegemon not have fucking responsibility for the things that happen in the world? Things don't just happen if you're the hegemon. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but like I can count on one hand the number of my like peer group who went in the direction I did. The rest of them are paranoidly sweating it out in the Biden administration at like one rung or another, um, just doubling down on feel good West wing liberal 
primacy. They are the reason, I think, for this disjunction. Like when you look at the Biden administration on domestic policy, he's like pretty far more progressive than I think people expected. Certainly me. I have quibbles here and there, like he doesn't go far enough or whatever, but just way more radical than on domestic than um, people expected. But on foreign policy, it's the same shit. Like foreign policy looks exactly like under Obama. I mean, it's not there's not there's nothing different here. Um, and he's even worse than Trump on a lot of China stuff. And it's just like, what the, f you know, and I think it's, it's these people. I mean, I say these people, they're like former friends of mine or whatever, but they're doubling down on this like feel good liberal internationalism kind of no matter the price, no matter the risk. Yeah. And I don't notice too, this, this differentiation that people make that you are either a liberal internationalist or an isolationist. Like, yeah, you it's couldn't a bullshit possibly frame. have another vision of cosmopolitanism or like global solidarity, right? Or like none of that, none of that. You can only be an isolationist mm -hmm. or a liberal internationalist. And they yeah. give you no room to be anything else. Yeah, pretty much. Liberalism seems like it has only two modes. And you mentioned earlier how it's like, they, there's this constant crisis mindset. There's, there is like this perpetual crisis vibe in liberalism, but there's also like the end of history vibe, like just pure fucking like triumphalism. There is no alternative, you know, mm. those seem like two extremes. Yeah. Do you think that's right? But like, what is that? What, how do you make sense of that? Um, I think that comes back to the fact that there is no there there, right? There is no actual vision of the world. So they don't, have a vision of like what a kind of really integrated, non-hierarchical, redistributive, functioning, anti-capitalist world could be, right? Yeah. So because they, and they don't, so they are always in reaction mode and they are always throwing words out at you. So what, again, what we believe in is human rights, you know, we believe in we believe in multilateralism. We believe in free and fair trade. I mean, again, it's a soup, and it depends on the day what flavors you get. And because there is no there, there, there's only things that you can gin up in the moment. So you're either ginning up crisis or you're ginning up triumph, and it 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 moves back and forth. I think the thing that's really important to know is that the crisis is always there. So even in their most imperialistly, and they wouldn't say this, but their most triumphalist moments and in the 90s, mm -hmm. right? You can go back and look at articles that Dudney and Eikenberry wrote in the mid-90s, and they're already starting to talk about what looks like crisis. So they're starting to say, okay, yeah, maybe all of this nationalism in Europe, mm. this might make us a little nervous about the liberal world order in the West, but that is not a cause for a crisis of self-confidence, right? So, so this starts really early. And then very few people have spent as much time with Eikenberry's publications as I have. And I can tell you that at least twice a year, the word crisis appears in something that he has written since about 2000, right? Hmm. Just go look it yeah. up. And 
it, um, it is astonishing. So crisis is baked into the triumphalism. It's not even that there are two modes. It's that those modes are sort of dialectically related to each other. You're either the best thing that ever happened in the world or you're on the brink of disaster and that is always pulling at each other and that is totally imperialist. All right, gang, that's going to do it for part one of this two-part episode with Jeannie Moorfield. Catch us real soon to get the second half, which is going to be even juicier. All right, peace.